All right, it's, can you hear me? Yes. Good morning. It's good to see you all here. I love early morning hearing the chatter. It's just a delight to me to hear people enjoying themselves. I thought what I would do to get started is just introduce you to me and wanted to show you a picture of me and my husband, Don. We've been married for 44 years. Yeah, and we served 12 years in the Middle East, 12 years at our U.S. office, which used to be located in Reading, Pennsylvania, five years in India, and seven years in Spain. We just had our span anniversary last week, so seven years in Spain. We have two sons and two daughters, and the next photo is our family, right? Like within a span of 13 years, we had four weddings and 12 grandchildren. And being a grandmother is so much easier than being a mother. So this picture was taken in July, and it was the first time our whole family could be together in one place in six years. And we just thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. My dad came, and we all just had a wonderful time. And relationships... Family relationships are really important, aren't they? Because we know that time is limited. The time that we have with our family doesn't last forever. It's limited. But in contrast, our relationship with our Heavenly Father and this bond we have as sisters in Christ, this spiritual family, that's going to last forever. And Paul Tripp reminds us of this when he wrote, We were created to live in a forever relationship with a forever God, forever. We were designed to live based on a long view of life. We were made to live with one eye on now and one eye on on eternity. And an important aspect of persevering is that eternal perspective, keeping our focus on eternity. Now, Moses realized that life was short, and the Holy Spirit guided him to write Psalm 90. And I would like to open our time with a prayer of Moses from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, are like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. 
May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Now, I actually got out a calculator and numbered my days. <laughs> Today it is 23,798. And it took me a while to realize I was, getting, I was getting older. And this was back when I had brown hair. And a lady came up to me and she said, I'd, I'd like to speak to an older woman. And I'm like, well, yeah, let's go find one. In my head, right, I'm thinking that. And I look around and there's nobody. There's nobody around me. I'm like, that's me. I am now an older woman. And it just it shook me for a minute. And then I started thinking about it. And so one of my favorite things about being an older woman is that I have a longer history of experiencing the faithfulness and the kindness of God. Through joys and through challenges, through successes, through failures, I have reveled in God's kindness and his faithfulness and his goodness. So one of my obligations and a delightful responsibility because of that longer history is to invest in the next generation, to share what I've learned with others. And I am so grateful to see you here knowing that God has called you and to know what he's doing in you, what he's doing through you, and what he will continue to do in and through you. So several psalmists, they talk about this responsibility of being an older person to invest in others. So David wrote in Psalm 71, Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Asaph wrote in Psalm 78, We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. Ethan, the Ezraite, wrote in Psalm 89, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. So it is a privilege and an honor for me to stand in front of you today and tell you God does amazing things. He does mighty acts. He is all-powerful. And I testify to his faithfulness as someone who has wanted to run away, escape, quit, time and time again. When we were living in Egypt and things were pretty hard, I think I kind of hit my low point. Well, one of them. And I was remembering when I was a little girl and how we would have workers come to share at our churches. And they'd say, I, Lord, anywhere but, hope, um, but Africa. Anywhere but Africa. And then God would send them to Africa, and they were happy. I got this idea. Lord, anywhere but Hawaii. <laughs> anywhere but Hawaii. And just so you know, reverse psychology doesn't work with God. <laughs> I want to remind you of two things that you already know. The first one is that life in general is hard. And when you serve across cultures, it already adds to what is hard. Ministry is challenging. Had I known that the most prepared I was ever going to feel 
and cross-cultural ministry was on the plane headed to my first term, I would have savored that moment a little bit more. Goodbyes hurt, and they don't get easier. And I was thinking about this, and I think as a matter of fact, as I get older, the goodbyes get harder. Packing multiple times for multiple moves, trying to decide what to keep, what to sell, what to give away. We had this painting of, I don't know the name of it, but there's a farmer in the front of a field, and they're like praying, and it didn't, we didn't have room for it in my suitcase, and there was this new believing family that we could give it to, and I'm so happy that we could give it to them, but every now and again, I think of that painting, and I wish we still had it. At times, we all feel lonely. Um, my first um, Thrive Retreat was 12 years ago in India, and I'd only been in the country a few months, and I had three numbers on my cell phone. My husband, Don, that doesn't count because he has to be on there. <laughs> my two teammates, again, we had to communicate, and I was just feeling so alone. And I went to this Thrive Retreat, and on one of the nights, Lori had us all go to where we lived, like what parts of the city, what parts of the country. And I went home with nine new phone numbers. It was a lifesaver. I found my people. I found my tribe. And we could get together after that. We would have like chat and chais and visit together. It was just wonderful to have those friendships. But that loneliness is hard. So with challenges like this and others that you could name, how can we keep going? Because it is hard. It feels overwhelming. And I think we've all considered quitting at some point in time. If you've considered that, could you just kind of? Okay. (laughs) All right, I'm not alone in this. All right. So the second thing that I want to remind us of is that God is faithful. And whatever he has called you to do, he promises to be with you. He will use you, empower you. He redeems every pain you endure. He refines and purifies us through our trials. His purposes are always, always good. We can persevere rejoicing in hope because God is with us every step of the way, even when we feel overwhelmed. So what I'd like to do is share with you an example from our first term just a few weeks after moving into our new country. This is about what our family looked like. And when we flew into Cairo, my husband had carried and moved our 14 trunks about 15 times. And we finally arrived at our destination in two taxis. It was about 115 degrees that day. And we were pretty warm as our taxi deposited us by this place that we were going to stay. And there was a gardener in the yard, and he was watering dirt. Like, I don't know why, but he was watering the dirt. Don finished arguing with the taxi drivers about how much to pay, and then he walked to a friend's house who had the key to let us in this new place. So while he was walking, I'm trying to watch the kids, and there's something about mud, right, and children. So three of my four kids had either fallen in it or played with it, and the baby, she just tried to eat it. So while Don was walking, he didn't know this, but somebody pickpocketed him and just stole all the money that he had just exchanged. And he didn't realize it until he got to the place and his pocket was hanging out empty. But he comes back, he has the key, we get in, 
We, he moves the trunks one more time. We wash up the kids, and we're going to go have dinner with our new friends. And as we shut the door, we look at each other, and we go, do you have the key? And the key was inside. So we spent the night at a hotel that night. And the next morning, my husband developed, he, he didn't know he had this skill, but he broke in <laughs> into this house. And it was a useful skill. Um, so our first week there, my son, the older one, the blonde, he had this intestinal bacterial infection, had a temperature of 103. And you know what else what happens with, yeah, okay. And then my husband wasn't feeling well, and my baby was sick. And I don't know if this was some kind of hazing for new people, but our coworkers told us we wouldn't need the air conditioner at night. I, I know, right? And so, you know, we opened the windows and we're laying in bed and we are like sweat is pouring out of pores we didn't even know we had. And I thought, well, this is silly. So I got up and I closed all the windows and I um, turned on the air conditioner. And just as it was about to get cool, the electricity goes out. So I get up and I open the windows. The baby wants to nurse. I nurse the baby, I put her back, I get back into bed, and I hear my son, um, he couldn't make it to the bathroom. So I'm cleaning up the mess off the floor, trying to get him cleaned up, situated, and somehow we used all the toilet paper. And I don't know what happened to the paper towels, they were gone, and I don't know when the tissues disappeared. But I got him back to bed. The baby wanted to nurse. The electricity came back on. So I turned on the air conditioner. And after I nursed the baby, I changed her diaper and realized it was the last diaper. So when we woke up, my baby Katie had another dirty diaper. And we had, we had no more diapers. There were no tissues, paper. There was nothing to wipe anything that came out of any end of anybody. <laughs> So somebody had to go to the store, and I elected my husband, who was just, poor guy, was sick and, as could be. And I remember him leaning against the door, and I, he looked at my face, and I just started crying. And he goes, he's, he's, he's sensitive. He goes, what's the matter? <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, it's your birthday today and I forgot to get you a present. And he looked at me, he's leaning against the door, and he goes, it'll be a happy birthday if we make it through this day. <laughs> so as he walked out the door, I felt the need for a little emotional release, so I cried even more. And that's really hard without tissues. You know, when you start using your sleeve. And I just sat there, and I thought, I can't figure out, God, why did you bring us here if it's going to be this awful? I mean, this is... This is hard. And in Bible school, they tell you not to do this. But I said, God, I need a word from you. I'm just going to throw open my Bible, and you're just going to have to do something because this is pitiful. And I opened my Bible. It landed. God works through that. Psalm 73, 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. This is it. But as for me, 
It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. As I read those verses, I just felt the comfort, the peace of God, that he was with me, even in situations like this. So one night, my husband and I snuggled in bed, and this only happened when the electricity was on. (laughs) And we were discouraged about living out of trunks and getting cheated by almost everyone and stared at by everyone else, fighting the dirt and the bugs and the traffic. And I looked at him, and I asked him if we could go home. He looked at me, and he said, yes, as long as you're the one who repacks the trunks and carries them. (laughs) So I decided that we could stick it out a little while longer. But the thing is, in this room, we all have stories like this, right? The moment when you're sitting there, and it's just ridiculous how much has gone wrong. Everybody has a story like that. We're overwhelmed. It's like we feel like we might want to quit, but then God meets us. He gives grace, and we make it another day. So remembering that life is hard and God is faithful, what I'd like to do is just talk a little bit about how do we endure, how do we persevere when we feel like giving up, We've already talked about how important an eternal perspective is because if we focus on what is temporary, it's going to be a lot harder to endure. Like if I'm looking at what I'm doing right now and my my focus is down here, I forget why I'm here. If I'm looking at my current level of happiness or comfort, that's not a good gauge. And if What I do seems seemingly fruitless, and I love that word seemingly, right? Because we won't know till eternity all that God has done through little acts that we do. But if you're looking for these really big results all the time, you're like, well, I'm not doing anything here. I'm not being effective. Maybe I should just go home. So if our eyes are focused down here, we're forgetting that eternal perspective and getting the big picture of what God is doing. So Paul gives these three short commands that I think help us persevere when we feel like quitting because they keep our perspective on eternity. Romans 12, 12, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, and be faithful in prayer. I like looking at things like this in other translations. So these include constantly rejoicing in hope because of our confidence in Christ, steadfast and patient in distress, devoted to prayer, continually seeking wisdom, guidance, and strength. Be rejoicing in your hope. Bear your afflictions bravely. Be persistent in prayer. In the hope, rejoicing. In the tribulation, enduring. In the prayer, persevering. In hope, rejoicing. In tribulation, enduring. In prayer, continuing instant. Doesn't that last one sound kind of fun? Continuing instant. I like that. But no matter how you phrase it, these three steps of obedience will help develop and maintain that eternal perspective that helps us persevere. So being joyful and hope. In the original language, I looked this up, to be joyful is to be cheerful, to be calmly happy or well off. And hope is expectation, trust, 
confidence. So to be joyful in hope is to be calmly happy or cheerful in our expectation. So we know that joy is not a personality trait. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. Joy is more about trusting in the God of hope. So if I put my hope in my own strength or my own ability to endure, joy doesn't have much room in my heart because of all the apprehension that fills it. And if I place my trust in another person, eventually, no matter how faithful that person is, they're going to disappoint me. And with misplaced hope, it's easy to grow fearful. It's easy to grow wearied. And if I for, worried, and if I forget or lose sight of the solid truth of Scripture, that rock that anchors my soul in truth, I forget that eternal home to which we're called, there can be no joy. And we must rejoice in hope. All right, so what does that look like? How do we rejoice in hope? And I want to take us to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And it tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We look to Jesus and follow his example. He endured the cross because his eyes was on the joy that was coming. Oswald Chambers wrote, The joy of Jesus was the absolute self-surrender and self-sacrifice of himself to his Father, the joy of doing that which the Father sent him to do. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And I started thinking about that, and I thought, how did that play out in in the Gospels? And in the book of John, chapter 12, verses 23 to 28, says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is talking about his impending death. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to suffer. But he also knew that he had come into the world for just this reason. So he refocuses on glorifying God as his main goal in life and death. He knew what was coming. He knew the cross was coming and it was going to be hard, but he also knew the joy that was coming afterwards would far exceed 
what he was going through. We too can follow Jesus' example and not always ask to be excused from suffering, but ask God to glorify his name through it. When I'm in a difficult situation, my first instinct is to ask to be saved from it. I ask for an escape. But then I remember Jesus, and I must recognize that it's possible that God brought me to this hour so that I could glorify his name through it rather than escape from it. In my humanness, I always look for an escape. It's only with the eyes of faith that I can remember that why I am living and that though God's purpose includes me, it's not about me. It's bigger than me. So Jesus endured the cross because of the ultimate joy of glorifying his Father. I think there's great joy in that hope of what's to come. When going through a trial, I can find joy knowing that God's at work in me, producing good in me now, as well as the good that will come in eternity. Jesus, knowing that death was coming, kept his focus on the joy that was in front of him. The author of Hebrews tells us to consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. And I think it's fairly normal to grow weary with opposition all around us. It's easy to lose heart. When we focus on our challenges and on our circumstances, our eyes aren't on Jesus, and we can grow discouraged. We went overseas, and I expected to do really great things for God, and I found that I could barely keep up with the laundry. If we're having great opportunities like we, if we don't have those great opportunities like we were expecting, it's easy to lose heart. We want to trust God for the impossible, but sometimes the possible doesn't even seem likely. Sometimes quitting looks like a good idea. So the first time my husband and a coworker went in for police questioning, they had an appointment at 9 p.m., and as I walked into the door, I was trying to think of something deep, like spiritual, like, because I didn't, we didn't know if he was going to come back home right away. Just what could I say that would be an encouragement? Nothing came to my mind. The only thing that I could think to say was, do you think you should wear two pair of underwear in case you don't come home for a while? (laughs) Yep, nothing deep in that. I was just being practical. As the hours passed, I waited and prayed. I watched television and prayed. I paced our apartment and prayed. I'm looking out our windows to see if I can see his car pull up, and I prayed. And it was around midnight, and I thought, this, this was it. How was I going to tell our kids in the morning that their dad was in jail? I thought about, like, so kids, what do your dad, the Apostle Paul, and Silas all have in common? <laughs> I thought, no, that wouldn't be good. That, no, that wouldn't be good. Like, um, I suppose you're wondering where your dad, I mean, all of these thoughts kind of going through my mind. And the biggest one, like, he's not here, and if we have to leave, who's going to help me pack up my flat? Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to communicate this with them? And so around 12.45 a.m., I heard the key in the door, and I ran in to see him. I said, how did it go? Who did you talk to? What did they ask? What are we going to do? What are the plans? And he finally looked at me because, you know, 
you're asking more questions than the police did. (laughs) So I stopped. But my self-control had been admirable that day. Like, I didn't tell our kids we put them to bed like normal, that kind of thing. I hadn't cried at all until we went to bed when my husband hugged me and told me that he was glad he was spending the night with me and not with his co-worker in a jail cell. (laughs) And I just started crying. And Don went in for several questionings after that, and each time there's this fear, this uncertainty of what's going to happen. And I wanted to escape. I wanted to go home. I didn't like, I don't like uncertainty. I didn't like not knowing what was going to happen. But each day, God gave grace to stay. And trust in God grew as we watched him provide for us, protect us, And it wasn't until several years later that when Don's visa wasn't removed, we found out that there was this little piece of paper that got lost in all of the other papers, and they never saw it until that last interview. And that's when they said that um, his visa would not be renewed. So we had two months to leave our home of eight years. It was time to leave our coworkers, our national friends, our vision of serving Christ in the Middle East that had been ours for 11 years sorted through what we owned, got rid of things. And as we faced the uncertainty of the future, like what was plan B going to look like, we were certain in whom we trusted. And again, God used the Psalms to speak to me. And in Psalm 27, 13 and 14, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So we knew it was God closing the door. We knew his plan for us was good. We trusted and waited as he led us in a new direction. And this doesn't seem like much, but I remember baking a cake. And I called it like my God's faithfulness cake. It was like a tangible, something small, but something tangible that I could do that would say, God is the one who opens doors. God is the one who closes doors. We're not leaving because of the fickleness of a government official. We're leaving because God had another place for us to go. Rejoicing in hope, not negating the hard, but knowing that through the hard, good is coming. We take joy in that hope. Paul David Tripp reminds us of the power of hope and focusing on eternity in his book, New Morning Mercies. Your eternity amnesia makes you unrealistically expectant, vulnerable to temptation, all too driven, dependent on people and things that will only disappoint you, and sadly susceptible to doubting the goodness of God. Recognizing the eternity that is to come allows you to be realistic without being hopeless and hopeful when things around you don't encourage much hope. To rejoice in hope... The word of God is a source. In Romans 15:4, Paul reminds us of why many of the stories in Scripture were written. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in Scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And you think about those stories in Scripture, right? The Israelite midwives chose the hard because of their eternal perspective. Daniel kept praying. Esther went to the king, not looking at the present, but at the joy that was to come, that eternal perspective. 
God not only uses scripture, but he also uses milestones in our own lives of things that we can look back on and see how he was at work. So years ago, my daughter Katie was a baby, and she was probably one and a half, right? And my mom had just given her a new pair of shoes. They were so cute on her little feet. And Katie and I were going to go do an errand. And so I, ha- I was holding her, and we walked down, and we you know, flag down a taxi. We get in the taxi. We get to the store. I get out of the taxi, and I'm walking into the store, and I happen to look down, and one of Katie's shoes is missing. And I'm like, ah. And so I thought, what I'll do is I'll, I'll run out and catch that taxi. Maybe I won't be too late. So I run out of this, ran out of the store, and I'm looking, and all the taxis back then were black and white, and there was just a sea of taxis. And I realized that I was, I was too late. And I remember standing on the sidewalk and thinking, I could pray about that shoe. And then I looked at all those taxis. And this, in the city, there were about 15 million people. That's like 30 million feet. So that's like 30 million <laughs> shoes in this city. So what would be the odds of ever finding that one shoe in that city? And so... I didn't pray about it. I dismissed it. I said, okay, I lost the shoe. Inevitable. Later that day, we had a team meeting. Nothing happens to me that I don't gush out to people. And so we're in this team meeting, and I'm just like, Katie only had the shoe for 15 minutes, and I lost it in the taxi. And everybody, oh, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> and I mean, they really were empathetic, right? But we, none of us prayed about it. But later that day, my teammate Mark was riding in a taxi. And the taxi driver said, so where are you from? And Mark says, I'm from America. And the guy says, you know, there was a lady from America in my taxi this morning. She spoke Arabic as well. She left the shoe in the taxi. (laughs) My teammate Mark, he said, I know that woman. I know that shoe. And the taxi driver, the taxi driver said, give me her address and I will take the shoe to her. Like, this is way back in the day. There's no cell phone. There's no way for me to know what's happening, right? So I'm home, probably still bemoaning the loss of the shoe, and then there was this knock at the door. And I go to the door, and I open it, and I kid you not, there was the taxi driver with Katie's shoe in his hand, and he's just holding it out to me like that. This very seldom happens, but I was speechless. (laughs) Impossible. Too hard. Why even pray about it? It could never happen. All of a sudden, I became aware of the limitations I had put on God. And he was showing me, delightfully so, I think he was smiling big time up there, um, just to help me realize that he does miracles, and they're not hard for him. And he delights to show us his power and his grace. Whenever I recall God's intervention in my life in moments like that, or even in moments where that doesn't happen and you let it go, my husband left his camera. Yeah, that didn't come back, but I got my shoe. Um, I don't know why God chooses to do what he does and when he does it, But in moments of disappointment, in moments of joy, that trust grows in him because we know that he's with us and that he's for us, and we can rejoice in that hope. 
So no matter, no matter what is going on in your life right now or in your ministry, your story does not end here. As Jesus demonstrated for us, this hour that God has brought us to, this hour isn't to make us fearful or scared or trying to escape, whatever this trial or challenge is, but God can take us through that hour for his glory. What is going on now isn't how things will always be. As God's children, we have a future and we have a hope. And we can rejoice in that hope because God is with us in the hard and he is using this hard for our good and for his glory. Our God is a God of hope and we rejoice in that hope because the Lord is with us and for us. I'd like to close our time together with reading this prayer from Romans fifteen thirteen. Would you bow with me? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May it be so. Amen. Each morning after Sue finishes her message, I want to give us just a few minutes to let that message.